right, today we continue uh, in our series in Genesis, and this is our uh, last text on the character of Noah. We'll be reading Genesis chapter 9, starting verse 18, we'll read through verse 29. The sons of Noah who went forth from the ark were Shem, Ham, and Japheth. Ham was the father of Canaan. These three were the sons of Noah, and from these people of the whole earth were were dispersed. Noah began to be a man of the soil, and he planted a vineyard. He drank of the wine and became drunk and lay uncovered in his tent. And Ham, the father of Canaan, saw the nakedness of his father and told his two brothers outside. Then Sham and Japheth took a garment, laid it on both their shoulders, and walked backward and covered the nakedness of their father. Their faces were turned backward, and they did not see their father's nakedness. When Noah awoke from his wine and knew what his Youngest son had done to him, he said, Cursed be Canaan, a servant of servants, shall he be to his brothers. He also said, Blessed be the Lord, the God of Shem, and let Canaan be his servant. May God enlarge Japheth and let him dwell in the tents of Shem and let Canaan be his servant. And after the flood, Noah had lived 350 years. All the days of Noah were 950 years. And he died. The word of the Lord. Let's pray together. Uh, Father, we uh, need your help. Uh, Lord, even if we're uh, uh, semi-professionals at listening to sermons, uh, Lord, uh, we, uh, we need you to surprise us today. We need you to apply this uh, text to our lives in, in, in ways that fit where we are uh, in January of 2023. And uh, Lord, I pray you would help me. Uh, Lord, I, I don't depend on uh, my experience. I don't depend on my uh, preparation or abilities, but Lord, I, I need your help. Uh, Lord, would you send uh, your spirit and make us into your image even now? In Christ's name, amen. This is a pretty bizarre story, isn't it? I mean, w- why is this here? Why is this in the Bible? Well, why does Noah appear in such a bad light after he's been, give, been portrayed in such a positive light up to this point? And and what exactly did Ham do to Noah? Who is Canaan and why is he cursed over Ham? I mean, we've got all kinds of questions after reading this text, don't we? But sometimes our questions about the text in the Bible aren't questions that the text is trying to answer. And that's one of the challenges with studying the Bible. I mean, even after you do the historical context... Even after you've done the literary, even after you dealt with the literary nature of the text, you can still have lots of questions. And so, what our work is to do as we come to the scriptures is to deal with the text as it stands. And that's what we're going to try to do this morning. And I think what the text is trying to do is to warn us of evil through the characters of Noah and Ham, and then lure us with grace through Shem and Japheth. So, let's start with the warning of Noah. Here you have an old man sprawled out in the buff, drunk in his tent. I mean, it sounds like he's been to a rager, doesn't it? I mean, this is what you might see on a state street on a Thursday night or Friday morning, perhaps. And certainly the text isn't recounting one of Noah's better days. It's not a flattering picture. And it's one as readers up to this point in the book of Genesis that we're really surprised to encounter. Because ever since Noah's introduced in Genesis chapter 6, he's been 
nothing short of a spiritual giant. He's a saint of sorts. Here's how he's described. Chapter 6, verse 8, it says that he found favor with God. Chapter 6, verse 9 says, righteous, that Noah is righteous, blameless, and he walked with God. 6.22 and 7.5 says that he did all that God commanded him. Chapter 8, verse 20 says that he emerges uh, from the boat after the flood, and the first thing that Noah does is he worships. Then chapter 9, verse 1, God blesses Noah and enters into a covenant with him. It's a pretty good, recommend, pretty good resume, isn't it? I mean, these are pretty high accolades for Brother Noah. He's got a good track record. He's got a lot of years of walking with God under his belt. And he's exceptional, literally, when compared to all the other humans of the time. But he's not perfect. He's a sinner, too. And if God wanted to eradicate evil totally, he would have had to eradicate the entire human race, even Noah. And so right here in Genesis chapter 9, Noah has his portrait painted, warts and all. Have you ever wondered where this phrase warts and all came from? Well, it comes from Oliver Cromwell. I know I've already got this British royalty thing going, so I'm just running with it today. And Oliver Cromwell, if you don't know, he was the Lord Protector of England from 1653 to 1658. He's an important person in British history, and because he was so, so important, he needed to have his portrait done. And most portraits at the time, they flattered their subjects. But not Cromwell's portrait. And it wasn't flattering because he gave these instructions to the portrait painter. He says, I desire you would use all of your skill to paint my picture truly like I am and not flatter me at all. Include all my roughnesses. I love that word. My pimples, my warts, and everything as you see me. Otherwise, I will never pay a farthing for it. Now, these would be unusual instructions for us to give to a portrait painter, but even more so in his time. But Cromwell was no slave to vanity. He was a man of the people, and so are our biblical heroes. The Bible doesn't sugarcoat its main players. And I think the reason the Bible doesn't is because the authors of the Bible, they know that we're apt to put people on a pedestal. We want people to emulate, to help us guide, to give us as, as guides through life. And that's why we spend so much time scrapping for details about famous musicians or famous athletes or famous film stars and, yes, even famous ministry leaders. And when we admire people and emulate people to this degree, it distracts us from being focused on our own growth and our own responsibility because we're just gawking at the compelling lives of those we admire. The truth is, the load that famous people, especially famous ministry leaders, carry on behalf of our admiration, it's crushing for them and it's harmful for us. So when we come to Noah's episode here, it reminds us to be vigilant, that we don't make sure, that we make sure that we don't idolize our heroes, even our heroes in the Bible, save for Jesus. But the episode of Noah also warns us that we're never too mature to take the foot off the gas as we pursue holiness. Here we have Noah here. He's in the back third of his life. And all of his experience doesn't make him immune to a fall. He has a lapse of watchfulness. 1 Corinthians 10, 12 says, Therefore let anyone who thinks that he stands take heed, lest he fall. 
Isn't that relevant for us? It's even more relevant for those of us who have been converted for a long time. And if Noah can fall after all he had done, all he had accomplished, all that he had experienced in his relationship with God, then we can fall too. See, being a Christian, it it requires that we square our shoulders, that we're capable of all the sin that unbelievers are capable of too. I mean, 1 Corinthians 10, 12, that, that whole verse is that when we are not susceptible is actually when we're the most susceptible. And when you don't think you're susceptible, you, you then let your guard down and boom, you're done. You've done what you've never thought possible. And for Noah, letting his guard down led to him getting drunk. And this episode gives us an opportunity to evaluate the merits of alcohol. See, alcohol is a subject the Bible speaks to quite clearly. On the one hand, the Bible celebrates alcohol. Let me give you a few verses. Psalm 104, verse 14 says this, you cause, this is the psalmist praying to God, and he prays, you cause the grass to grow for the livestock, plants for man to cultivate, that he may bring forth food from the earth, and wine to gladden the heart of man. Judges 9.13. But the vine, using, uh, using the vine as a uh, personifying the vine, says, Shall I leave my wine that cheers God and men and go hold sway over the trees? Cheers God and men. Judges 9.13. Isaiah 25.6. On this mountain the Lord of hosts will make for all peoples a feast of rich food. And a feast of well-aged wine, a rich food full of marrow, of aged wine, well-refined. Then you get to John chapter 2, and they run out of wine, and Jesus doesn't make grape juice. He doesn't let them just drink water. He makes wine, which means that Jesus doesn't think it's an evil substance. So clearly the Bible doesn't condemn alcohol as such, but it does condemn drunkenness. It does so in Proverbs 23, 21, 1 Samuel 5, 1 Samuel 28, Ephesians 5, 18. Why does it do so? Why is being drunk such a bad deal? Well, it's because you lose your self-mastery. It opens you up to wickedness. And you look no further than the stories of being blackout drunk, or just drunk, drunk for that matter, and you do all kinds of things that you wouldn't have done if you were sober. And on this occasion, we, we don't get a window into why Noah drank. We don't know why he ends up spread out in the buff as an old man in his tent. But I do think a good question to ask is why we drink. Is it because we feel unpleasant emotions like anxiety or sadness or boredom or loneliness or shame or rejection and we would rather not engage those emotions in a healthy way? Is that why we drink? Do, do, do we use alcohol as an anesthetic to numb our pain? Or are we drinking because we're celebrating the good gifts of life alongside a drink or two? It's a fine line. It's hard to determine by yourself. And so a good thing to do is to ask those in your life and say, what do you think? Why, why do you think I'm drinking? What's it look like to you? And you need to trust their assessment. So when you look to the place that alcohol should have in your life, you should hold two truths simultaneously. On the one hand, the Bible sees alcohol as a means for celebration, while on the other, it condemns drunkenness. 
But the truth is, the drunkenness is not the reason for Noah's shame here. The reason for Noah's shame here is his nakedness. So now it's time to deal with Ham and his negative example and the warning that he gives us. See, Ham went into his father's tent, and the text says he does two things. Do you see it? It says he saw his father's nakedness, and then he told his two brothers about it. See, Noah's nakedness, it left him in a position of humiliation, a position of exposure, and it made him dishonorable, it made it dishonorable for Ham to see his father in this way. But what if the mere seeing of his father by Ham of Noah was just an accident? Why is that so bad? Well, look at what Ham does after seeing his father. He tells his brother, and it tips us off. It tips us off to the state of Ham's heart. There was something about his father's nakedness that delighted him to the point that he had to spread the news. I don't know, maybe before this, this day where Noah was drunk in his tent and naked, maybe before then there had been this growing resentment that Ham had for his father. It's hard to say. But what's sure is that Ham should have felt the pain of his father's predicament and sought to minimize his father's sorrow. But instead, Ham is amused by it. We have a hard time understanding is why this is such a big deal. Why is it such a big deal for Ham to disgrace Noah? After all, it's Noah's fault. He's the one who drank too much. He's the one who took off his clothes. It doesn't say that Ham stripped his father naked. Well, it's because honoring authorities in general and parents in particular is a really big deal in the ancient Near East, particularly for Israel. In fact, honoring parents is one of the top ten, right? It's one of the Ten Commandments. And I can guarantee you enjoying your father's shame does not classify as honoring one's parents. Gloating about your father's shame to your brothers doesn't classify as honoring your parents. So as you look at the text, maybe you want to see, what what is the moral of this text? What should I take from it? Well, it's not, don't look at your parents naked. If that were the point, I think we could all follow that one, right? The warning is different. The warning is, be sure to honor those in authority or you might get cursed. And some of us, we loathe all forms of authority. It doesn't matter if it's government, doesn't matter if it's church, doesn't matter if it's our supervisor at work, doesn't matter if it's our parents. We don't trust any of them. We unconsciously many times think that we should be in charge, that we have better ideas, that we don't want anyone else telling us what to do. And it's dangerous, it's prideful. So if distrust is your MO, then you likely will take delight when other authority figures slip up. We love a good scandal. Scandals are magnets for high ratings and they fuel our distrust, but we ought to honor those in authority, especially our parents. I've been thinking about this uh, lately. My parents are uh, getting older. I mean, I'm 42. You know, what's weird is like, you know, when I think about my parents, like they're forever 42, you know? Like I, it's hard for me to accept the fact that my parents are creeping into the, their 70s. But it can't help me with the things he used to help me with. He's aging, and I'm starting to wonder, what does it mean for me to honor my parents? Because the Bible doesn't say that uh, we age out of honoring our parents. Sure, it looks different at 8 than it does at, four, at 38. But I think for those of us as we're adults that we honor our parents because we continue to seek their input in our lives in many circumstances. 
We honor them as we help care for them as they age. We honor them by forgiving them for their shortcomings and the ways in which they failed us. If we don't honor our parents, we don't honor others that God has put in place of authority over us, then we shouldn't be surprised at their consequences. And the consequence for Ham is that he gets cursed. In fact, these, this curse by Noah of Ham and Canaan are the only words he utters in the whole narrative. It's a word of prophecy in many ways. He kind of says where his sons are going and what direction they're heading. He has Ham going in one direction and Shem and Japheth going in another. When we read this curse, it's odd because the curse seems more to pertain to Ham's son Canaan than it does to Ham. And we don't see Canaan active in this text. So why is Canaan cursed and not Ham? Well, remember, the first hearers of this of Genesis, they were Israelites, and they were the Israelites while they were wandering in the desert. What God's trying to do is explain to them their reality in that time by giving them their history. And while they're in the desert, they're headed towards the promised land, and when they're standing across from the promised land, they look over, and it's not like the promised land is a vacant area. It's got people in it, and those people are the people of Canaan. They're the Canaanites. And throughout the Old Testament, the Canaanites are almost always public enemy number one. And they were abundantly wicked people. In Leviticus 18, God tells his people, don't be like the Canaanites. And then he goes on and he lists out the practices that he does not want them to imitate. And the list almost is completely sexual in nature. It's a whole host of sexually immoral practices that were a part of the Canaanite culture. Include everything from incest to adultery to bestiality to homosexuality. They were all part and parcel of what it meant to be a Canaanite. Nothing was sacred to the Canaanites, especially sex. And so they end up being slaves just as Noah predicts to their own vices. They also become slaves to God's people when God's people enter into their land under Joshua's leadership. So in Leviticus 18, is it? talks about the vices, the sexual immorality that is part of Canaanite culture. Do you know what euphemism it uses for sexual immorality? Nakedness. So as they hear this text and they hear about Ham's son Canaan, they go, oh, the Canaanites. Now we know where they came from. And Noah predicts where the Canaanites are headed. That's why the text uses Canaan instead of Ham. That's one reason it's a little strange, Yes, the, the other has to do with our cultural position. See, as readers for us, we, we see a clear distinction between Ham and Canaan. They're separate individuals. That's the way we see them. But it's not the way the Bible sees them. See, what the Bible does, it views people not just as individuals, but it also views them as a collective, as a generation. And for us as human beings... A part of who we are is that we have a corporate identity that binds us to other people, that makes us a collective, including our family. For instance, Exodus chapter 20, before it gets into, during the the Ten Commandments, it says that judgment and grace are both passed from generation to the next. Here's what it says. It says that God visits sin 
only to the third and fourth generation of those who hate him. But God shows steadfast love to thousands of generations who love him. So the implication for us is that we need to trace our spiritual lineage. We need to see the evil influences of our past, not just from our family, but from the cultures in which we grew up and have saddled us. We need to acknowledge them. We need to seek freedom from them. But we also need not feel a sense of doom because of them, because the power of grace is stronger than the power of judgment. See, grace goes down a thousand generations, and judgment only goes down, did you see it? Three to four. That means there's hope for you. The family patterns of sin that are contagious and that have affected you can be broken. You're not trapped. God has put you in a new lineage. So you've got to ask the questions, who did you learn the gospel from? Who prayed you into the kingdom and you've got to give thanks for them? See, God's being faithful to his promise and we see that through the faithfulness, not of Ham, not of Canaan, but of Shem and Japheth. You see what they did? Unlike Ham, they didn't revel in their father's shame. Instead, they reveal their virtue by covering Noah. They show him proper respect. They don't take advantage of his vulnerable position. You see how careful they are? They, they, they put this garment across the backs of their shoulders and they walk backward and they cover their father without looking upon his shame. See, Noah didn't deserve this. Noah didn't even ask for it. Shem and Japheth, they didn't do it to show up their wicked brother. So when we read this, it's got profound implications for us because what Shem and Japheth are doing is that they're imitating God. Don't you remember what happened to Adam and Eve? When they sinned, they were embarrassed and they were naked because they were naked and they didn't want God to see them. They didn't want to see each other, so they put fig leaves over themselves. But God gave them something more enduring, didn't he? He gave them animal skins to cover their nakedness, to cover their shame. See, many of us, we think that the God of the Bible is all about exposing our sin, exposing our shame. But that's not what we see here. It's just the opposite. He curses those who want to gloat in other scandals and want to gloat in other people's sins. And he blesses those who cover sin because that's what God's all about. In fact, the line of promise follows Shem's line. You see it in Genesis chapter 10, the genealogy that follows right after this passage. It shows that Abraham comes from Shem. And then in Luke 3, we see that in the genealogy of Jesus, do you know where Jesus comes from? Shem. See, God covers the shame of Adam and Eve. Shem covers the shame of his father Noah. So it's not shocking to see Jesus carry forward this family trait. See, Jesus covers your shame and mine. His ministry of shame covering is spoken of in Isaiah 61. Here's what the prophet says. He says, He has clothed me with the garments of salvation. He has covered me with the robe of righteousness. See, brother and sister, do you come to church today embarrassed? Is there something from your past years ago that haunts you? Maybe you're part of an abortion. Maybe you had a secret habit or have a secret habit, this compulsion that you can't imagine God ever forgiving you for. Maybe you're in loads of financial debt because of poor decisions you've made. 
I don't have any idea what you feel ashamed of, but I can promise you this. Jesus took your shame. Jesus hung on a cross naked, fully exposed, humiliated. Why did he do it? He did it so that he could cover you with the garments of salvation. He wanted to cover you with a robe of righteousness instead of you living in the shame of your sin. Well, you might say, Marsh, you just don't understand. See, I, I can accept the Father's forgiveness of me. I, I, I can even accept the forgiveness of others that I've hurt. But I just can't forgive myself. Oh, yeah. You're, you're going to give your opinion of yourself greater weight than God's opinion of you. Don't you see that God's given you this robe? That's the way God sees you. Take his view upon yourself. And you need to know that his word is stronger than yours and it's going to win out in the end. You can argue with him all you want. and He's going to win. But I need to make another application about this text because this is, a, this is the question I've been asking all week. Is there any hope for the Canaanites? <laughs> Does God provide a way for them? As I was reading, I found, found a couple good nuggets. One was Isaiah 19. Isaiah 19, it's a passage that predicts a time when people who come from the Canaanite line are going to come in and they're going to worship with Israel. That was one thing I found. The other thing I found, I should have known about. I mean, this was just six, seven, eight weeks ago when I preached on a Canaanite. Do you remember who it was? It was Rahab. Rahab was... A prostitute that was converted and she is one of the mothers of Jesus. So it speaks to one of the key things that the gospel does. That yes, the gospel converts the wicked. <laughs> the gospel will give you forgiveness of sins. The gospel will empower your growth. The gospel will comfort you in your time of suffering. But the gospel also unites across race and ethnicity. That's why Galatians 3 says, For in Christ Jesus you are all sons of God through faith. For as many of you as were baptized into Christ have put on Christ, there is neither Jew nor Greek, slave nor free, male nor female, for you are all one in Christ Jesus. So you see here, the gospel has profound consequences for our relationships, especially for our relationships across difference. And this is what the world's dying to see but doesn't have the power to pull off, the gospel does. And may God do this work among us. Amen.